This is the Bartholomew Town Podcast. From City Hall, Brett Smiley, the 39th Mayor of Providence. Good morning. Good morning, Bill. Just got back from the U.S. Conference of Mayors. Um, I saw that Newport Mayor Zai Comes of Orvang was also down there. What was that experience like? It was good. It was my second uh, winter meeting. And so you get mayors from around the country, big, big city mayors, the biggest city mayors, Chicago, LA, all the way to small towns, and uh, and there really is a lot in common. We're dealing with many similar issues. Homelessness in this country was a big topic of conversation. Uh, obviously, the housing crisis is not unique to Rhode Island. Lots of people talking about that. Uh, and at least right now, in a Democratic administration, uh, the administration makes their officials available to us, which is very helpful. And so, you know, I had small group meetings with both the Transportation Secretary and the Commerce Secretary, but then uh, Secretary of State, I mean, most of the cabinet came and spoke to the conference as a whole, uh, all of which are, are useful to kind of glean insights into ways in which to be competitive for federal funding, policy directions that are going to impact America's cities, including Providence, uh, and a nice opportunity to network with colleague mayors around the country uh, to see kind of what they're trying, what's working, what's not. Uh, It's a real uh, spirit of collegiality in terms of sharing best practices and trying to get things done for all of our cities. Any takeaways in terms of conversations with the Biden administration about what Providence needs and what the federal government can do to obviously money, but besides just the the overview there, any specific needs that were addressed? Transportation comes to mind given the recent events with the Washington Bridge. Yeah, uh, I mean, there is still a fair amount, and and it is money, but uh, but it's not just money. There's still a fair amount of of unallocated or not yet uh, uh, awarded funding for transportation projects in the country. still from the Bipartisan uh, Infrastructure Act from, I guess, now two years ago. And so uh, when meeting with Secretary Buttigieg, we talked about both the work that's underway and where we still have pressing needs. He's very committed to an initiative that he calls Vision Zero, which is a a goal to have zero uh, pedestrian uh, uh, traffic accidents um, nationwide that result in a fatality. Providence is preparing to commit to that and make that pledge. Uh, Obviously, pedestrian safety has been a real issue in the city. Um, uh, The statistics show that pedestrian accidents resulting in a fatality are actually continue to inch down, um, but any death is too many. And so um, so we were talking about best practices, things are like uh, what they call road diets and bump outs and other uh, strategies, and, and, and it's... You know, I immediately start to think in our local context, what can we do on North Main Street to make it safer? We've had some real tragedies there. And it's a, in addition to there being money, it's a policy uh, objective for the U.S. Department of Transportation. And so when we engage in that, we think we're, they're going to want to engage with us. Transit comes to mind. RIPTA, obviously some buzz, some conversation about the relocation of the central bus hub from Kennedy Plaza. And, and just in general, I think there's a flavor right now that transit mass transit in Providence is not where it ought to be, that the operations of RIPTA, the choices that people can make are not where they ought to be in a super modern city. What's your take on RIPTA right now? What's your take on public transit and the governor's budget, which really doesn't have much of a carve out for certainly improvements to that system? Yeah, I mean, I I don't envy the RIPTA 
board and organization, um, like a lot of people, a lot of government entities, they got a fair amount of pandemic aid. Um, that's evaporating. There is this coming fiscal cliff. They also are substantially funded by the gasoline tax, which is something of a melting ice cube uh, in that people are driving less and less. And the, the less gas, well, they're buying less gas because there's both the increase in EVs and a decrease in vehicle miles traveled. Uh, and so they have a revenue source that's shrinking. Uh, my sense is and has always been that in Providence, Ripta works pretty well because we're the hub. Um, you know, we have a you know all of the routes here. Uh, as you get further away from the urban core, it doesn't serve Rhode Islanders particularly well, and and I think understandably suburban and exurban communities are worried that if there's service cuts, they might be the first ones to be impacted. Most of the buses are still going to come through Providence. Um, and so it, that's a problem, and and we need to be, be working together on stable funding. Uh, you know, the, the things like the free fare routes have been great for ridership, but they have a financial impact. And so, you know, I remember it was, I think it was two years ago, the RIPTA executive director said, that it's not that he didn't support the free fare pilot, but he wanted to make sure that he was getting funding elsewhere to make up for that lost revenue. And that, that to me, is a reasonable bit of feedback. Uh, and so uh, that's a problem. And uh, But there's transit more broadly. So in, in, in Providence, we have a robust micromobility program, the scooters and the bikes, uh, despite you know some complaints about scooters being left in the middle of sidewalks and some people having bad manners. Those are heavily used, something like over a half a million individual rides per year in the city of Providence. That is transit also. Uh, it's not just fixed bus routes. Uh, and so I think we need to continue to expand other options like that. There's some really interesting things happening around the country with um, you know, publicly operated um, things like minivan service and other ways to get around sort of dense urban environments that's maybe beyond just the traditional city bus that I think we're all familiar with. And so when I think about transit for Providence residents, uh, it certainly includes RIPTA, but it's not limited to RIPTA. And what we want is a place where people can get around our city without having to own their own car in a way that is good for business, good for workers, uh, good for visitors, and, and I do think that there is uh, a lot of opportunity on the on the horizon. I think that's something that happens in your administration, or are these seeds that are planted for many years out in terms of shifting Providence to a really, truly multimodal city uh, based on that infrastructure you described, based on RIPTA, bike lanes, pedestrian safety, all of these different aspects of things. Is that something in the near term, or are you looking at that like, all right, someday the legacy will be that Providence shifted to a multimodal city of a of a um, of a nature that other cities around the country might say that's what we want to do? Uh, I would love that uh, in my time in office that we have some great innovation that provides uh, better transit options for residents and visitors uh, alike. It's I I think it's something that is going to occur sort of opportunistically, uh, where uh, we find a great local entrepreneur or a philanthropic partner who wants to try something or the business community bands together. Uh, I intend to continue to be on the lookout and to raise this as a, as a need and a priority. I don't think there's a world, I, I'm not envisioning a world in which the city starts a transit agency. So I think it's going to come through some sort of partnership. And, and when that partnership 
um, presents itself or back to the mayor's conference conversation, if I see something that's working really well somewhere else, I'm going to jump at it. Uh, but it's, uh, it, it's going to evolve a little bit on its own course, I think. Noise cameras. Yeah. You've read 1984? <laughs> I have. Do you understand why there's some... Uh, first of all, let me, let me set it that certainly there are vehicles, certainly there are individuals that are annoying uh, in terms of the noise that's emitted. There's no question about that. It's a general problem. At the same time, there's folks who are worried about, even just on a, a practical basis, there's been some people who have reached out and said, hey, wait a second, my vehicle, the factory engine, is going to exceed the decibel meter. Why, why do this? Is it such a big problem that there's noise in this city that it requires the installation or the operation of, of cameras uh, to measure decibel levels and then offer a ticket to somebody who exceeds those? Yeah, so a couple things. One is it is a, a significant issue. Uh, it's something that I've heard from residents across the city for years. There's there's widespread frustration that our noise ordinance is not enforced. There's even an advocacy group committed entirely to this problem, the, the noise project. And uh, uh, there's a fair amount of public health data that talks about the negative impact of noise pollution. Uh, and and I think that this is a meaningful problem. Is this the one thing that I think you know rises above all else? No, but we can walk and chew gum at the same time, and we're, we're working on multiple quality of life issues simultaneously. But this is one of them, and it's a real one. Uh, cameras, I think, are an effective way to start to enforce our existing noise ordinance. Um, these are camera, this is camera technology that we already have in our community, license plate readers that are mailing tickets. Um, so any of the data privacy, security concerns um, are, uh, have been addressed and will continue to be monitored just like they are right now with our red light cameras and the speeding cameras in school zones. It's the same process. It's something that our community has had in place now for several years. Uh, and by the way, nearly every other community in Rhode Island and across the country. Uh, as, as far as someone who might have a concern about uh, whether their existing vehicle violates the noise ordinance, the cameras aren't in any way um, changing the standard. We already have a noise ordinance. It's just largely unenforced. And, and the city council and I have a role in monitoring that ordinance. And if it turns out that there needs to be adjustments to the noise ordinance in terms of what decibel level is a violation or not, that gets addressed in the ordinance. The cameras are only going to be programmed in accordance with what the city ordinance is. Uh, they're not setting a new standard or a different standard. Uh, they're just a tool for implementation. And, uh, and I think that the cameras are, uh, for me, a good way to implement for two reasons. Is One, the Providence police are understaffed and, and it's difficult. I mean, you kind of think about the mechanics of how you do this. You have a police officer with a noise meter in the right place at the right time to see a speeding car go by that's too loud. And then another police officer has to go and pull that person over. I mean, the circumstances by which that would all work out is hugely time intensive and probably not the best use of most police officers' time. Uh, and in a world in which we're struggling to recruit and that we've got other violent crime and illegal guns in our community, I think we could all agree that that's maybe not the best use of their time. Secondly, is there is, uh, I, I have heard feedback that there's concern about disproportionate uh, 
impact or uh, unequal enforcement, um, the noise cameras are not biased. Yeah. You trigger the decibel level, takes a picture of your license plate, mails a ticket. There's no one looking at what kind of car it is, uh, who the driver is, what neighborhood it's in. It's totally a level playing field. You're either over the limit or you're not. Uh, and, and I would hope that that would give some comfort to people who are concerned about disproportionate impact or unequal enforcement. Have you heard from the ice cream truck lobby about this? <laughs> I have not. Uh, although I think all of us, when we hear that song in the summer, gets stuck in our head for a week. Uh, I have some colleagues with young children who laugh that they uh, that their children have excellent hearing because they can hear it three neighborhoods over and, uh, <laughs> and are waiting on the curb. Uh, I think it'll be fine. I, you know, Newport's doing a pilot. New York City's already. Uh, fully implemented this in certain neighborhoods. Um, it's new technology, and so I understand. I'm not flippant about the fact that people have some concerns, um, but I think those concerns can be addressed and that we'll all have a little bit more peaceful of a city as a result of it. Not directly your purview at this moment, but it will be. Uh, Governor McKee's budget right now, not a lot of money for Providence schools. A lot of other big capital investments I've heard and seen pushback from administrators in the Providence Public School District that hey, look, we're not warm, safe, and dry, and right now the budget is not putting us in a position to be there. Your reaction to McKee's budget when it comes to Providence schools? Uh, so, first of all, I applaud him for a meaningful increase in the amount of funding for English language learners. Um, that is a, a major financial boon to the city, uh, but more importantly will provide necessary supports for um, the large percentage of our students who are, in fact, uh, English language learners or multilingual learners, as they call them now, MLLs. Um, so that's good. Um, and I think as a state, we need to have a reconciliation about how we're going to um, equitably fund uh, in schools statewide in an environment where many places are facing declining enrollment. Uh, and, and Providence is one of those communities. And so, uh, obviously, I don't want to see a cut. I don't want to see... Um, our schools have to see layoffs or, or other things, but we are in an environment, not every district, but many districts, in Providence especially, are having fewer students. And so um, if the state is going to um, fund districts with fewer students less, we just need to make sure that it's done fairly. There have been instances in years past where uh, other districts, not Providence, had declining enrollment. And at the end of the legislative session, those districts, those cuts didn't go through, and those districts were held whole. I, I guess what we're asking is to be treated fairly, which is if everyone's going to have to start to, to lose funding if they lose students, then we should plan ahead for that. And I would just ask that that be equitably uh, uh, applied budget year to budget year to budget year because there are years when enrollment goes up and there are years that enrollment goes down and it would be very unfair for this year when enrollment goes down to Providence to get hurt but in other years when other districts uh, for politics or for whatever reason their enrollment goes down and yet they get held harmless. It's no secret that the flooding that's taken place in really the whole region has been somewhat shocking. I don't remember this happening with any kind of regularity growing up in Rhode Island um, it does seem like there's a major shift. Is this an indicator that Providence is maybe not as ready infrastructurally for climate resi resiliency as it ought to be? Yes. I mean, we are a frontline community to climate change, and, and we are feeling the effects of it now, and hopefully uh, 
hopefully nobody denies at this point climate change is real and that it is affecting us. It is affecting us in Providence and in many other communities uh, around the state. And so we've got a lot of catch-up to do, and, and that's why um, last year in my first budget, we put meaningful dollars behind uh, infrastructure improvements in the space of resiliency, and we're going to have to continue to do so for the foreseeable future. Uh, nearly $30 million in sewer upgrades in last year's budget, uh, a capital improvement plan that was just recently signed that has quite a few uh, infrastructure investments for resiliency. Uh, we're working on the hurricane barrier. We're doing a big push on stormwater. Um, but infrastructure dollars alone aren't going to solve this problem. And so uh, what you're going to see from my team this year and in the years to come, it's not just about build, building bigger pipes, although there are some bigger pipes that need to go in, but that will not just solve the problem. We also need to be looking at the urban canopy. We need to do some deep paving. We need to incentivize people to catch and capture some of the stormwater on their property before it makes its way to the sewer in the first place. Uh, you know, we look at the, the, the map of the uh, urban canopy in Providence is exactly what you would think. The east side, Elmhurst, Mount Pleasant, good tree cover. Washington Park, South Providence, Olneyville, not nearly enough. And these problems are compounding. So when you don't have enough tree cover, your neighborhood's hotter, your air quality is uh, worse, you're using more air conditioning in order to stay cool, which drives up uh, carbon uh, emissions. And in stormwater, the best thing to capture water is actually not grass lawns, but trees with deep root structures that suck up all that water in a constructive, productive way that has all of these other great benefits. And so there's going to be a big push around tree planting. Uh, all of the strategies, we're doing all of the above. Uh, people have heard it from me before, but it's worth repeating. In the previous administration, they worked on, with robust community and stakeholder engagement, a climate justice plan. And despite the pressure generally for politicians to sort of tear things up so they can put their own name on top of the report. I'm not doing that. It's a good plan. We're focused entirely on implementation. We're not starting from scratch. We just wrote this plan. Now we need to execute on it. And so uh, Sheila Dormady, my director of policy and resiliency, Priscilla De La Cruz, our sustainability director, the city's sustainability commission are all focused on implementation of the plan. Uh, and, uh, and that's the roadmap ahead for us. Lastly, PVD Fest. Yeah. Um, what's the uh, what's your takeaway? We haven't we haven't sat down since PVD Fest. Look, look, there was community pushback. I mean, you can't control the weather. What are you going to do? Um, vendors who were kind of rained out in some cases were were able to recoup some of the money, but there was just a flavor that it was out there on social media. It was out there in conversation that PVD Fest wasn't what it ought to have been. It wasn't what it was in years past. What are the changes that you that you if any, that you imagine making if, in fact, PVD Fest happens this year? Yeah. So um, residents should expect PVD Fest to happen this year. And, and uh, hopefully and hopefully this is a, a hallmark of my administration and a personality trait of mine that people start to at least accept. They don't have to appreciate it, I suppose, which is that like I'm willing to admit when I'm wrong and I'm willing to, to adapt and continue to make changes. And even this summer, in the midst of some of that feedback, you know, I said multiple times, none of these changes are forever. Uh, and that PVD Fest has evolved. Even, you know, the last year of the Allure's administration wasn't like the first one. It, it, it's evolutionary, and that's good. Uh, and I'm not, uh, I'm not stubborn in that way. So, uh, I mean, you said it, but it is, it is perhaps the biggest piece of 
learning from this year, which was that the weather really was the primary problem. And no one's responsible for that. Uh, though it does beg the question of we need to be planning in a way that accommodates for, for bad weather so that we have a rain date or alternative days or some venues inside or something. Because you know, we just had a whole conversation about flooding. And it's like, we can't control the weather. And it's a lot of money and uh, a lot of artists and a lot of vendors who uh, were, were severely impacted because of it. That was disappointing. Um, I think there were some uh, good things about the venue. I, the Innovation Park, I heard from many people who had not actually been down there for a festival before, and they said, oh, this place is actually, this is a pretty good space. Uh, but I also understand that, that choosing that location um, uh, took away some of the street fair vibe and impacted some of our downtown businesses. It was disappointing to me uh, even though you know we ended up allowing block parties on Friday night, the walk from Innovation Park to the Dark Lady, for example, is seven minutes, six minutes maybe, and far too few people were willing to make that walk. Uh, and so that was disappointing to me, and, and I think it's a balance of we might need to just accept that people are only willing to walk so far <laughs> and maybe make it easier or better promote or something to get people to move about downtown a little bit further than people are used to moving. Um, and uh, as you said, we did offer some compensation to vendors to help um, refund the fees that they'd paid or report, replace a little bit of their um, damaged tents and things like that. Um, I was glad we were able to do that. Uh, appreciate the state. They paid half, we paid half. And uh, and so, you know, we're talking to our producing partner, First Works. We've certainly heard plenty of feedback from both the community and artists and vendors about what what didn't work and what did work. It was not all bad. Uh, and, and we're going to make adjustments again for this year. We haven't made any announcements yet. I'm sure you'll cover it when we do. And, uh, and I hope that next year is better than this year. Mayor Smiley from City Hall, from your office, thanks for your time. Thank you. We are brought to you in part by Navigant Credit Union. As Rhode Island's first ever member-owned credit union, Navigant Credit Union has been a staple in the local business community for more than 108 years. Today, Navigant is a $3.4 billion institution serving more than 136,000 members across 25 physical branch locations. But since its founding in 1915, the mission has never changed. Navigant Credit Union's team of financial professionals have remained committed to improving the financial well-being of the families, businesses, and communities they serve across Rhode Island. Learn more at NavigantCU.org.